Please turn with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. As you know, we are going through the letter of 1 Corinthians. Uh, this, this church was the one that gave Paul, I think, the greatest number of fits. Uh, he had a lot to deal with. What's strange is, is that they were probably, as far as the churches that, that Paul ministered to, Corinth was the greatest in a sense of its grasp of culture. Okay, It knew culture. It knew Greek thought. It knew the pantheon of religions. And yet, uh, they even had, probably in some sense, a real high knowledge of theology. But they were really bad at applying it well. And that's what Paul is dealing with. Just to give you a slight recap, uh, next week, starting in verse 2 of 11, Paul says, Now I commend you. So it's really not until verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 2, that Paul finally is ready to commend these poor people. For 10 chapters, he's kind of given it to them, right in the side. They need it. We need it. Um, the reason we need it, or they need it, let me just talk about them, is they have divisions. They have uh, issues. They don't know how to live their Christianity out in their midst. When I say we, I just mean the modern church. Okay, I think, Grace, you guys are wonderful. You have no problems. But the modern church really needs to pay attention to what was going on in Corinth because they had learned theology. They had learned how to engage in religious practices. But just because people practice religious practices doesn't mean that you're spiritual. Just going through the motions doesn't make you a spiritual person. So we're going to look at that. As a reminder, 8, 9, and 10, the, the big thing that Paul is dealing with is food sacrifice to idols. But in 10, I think he's really summarizing a lot of the issue up in one passage. At the end of chapter 10, though, he does give very practical, okay, about food sacrifice to idols, here are the answers. Boom, boom, boom. Some of those we've covered. We're going to look at chapter 10, verse 1 through 22. We'll jump down to 31 and finish out there. So, please follow along with me in your text. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction whom, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands... Take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, 
We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices participating in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. That would make a great bumper sticker. There's your Christian bumper sticker. Okay. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And then in verse 31, we covered 23 through this portion as well already, so we're going to jump down to 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Apostle Paul, that he was able to be an imitator of you, Christ. Lord, thank you that you've called us to be imitators of you by sending your spirit into our hearts, by transforming our lives. Help us this morning through the power of your spirit, the presence of your spirit, to see this passage and to see all of this letter through the lens of your gospel that we may grow in you. It is in the name of Jesus we ask these things. Amen. Paul has been making this argument, as I've already alluded to in this letter. Um, if you go all the way back to the beginning of 1 Corinthians, Paul is discouraged by the divisions in the church. And then in verse 18 of chapter 1, he says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us we are being saved. It is the power of God. And then a little bit later, he talks about how wisdom is not from knowledge and what you learn. It's from the Spirit. And he says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And one of the questions on Paul's mind is, are you spiritual? Now, a lot of Christian groups, of Christian churches, I think will treat Christianity like this. Either you're a Christian or you're not. So you heard Shane mention this earlier. If you've been struggling with sin, maybe you're not, right? But if you're walking with Christ, then you don't struggle with sin. Well, first of all, let me dispel the notion that there's such a thing as carnal Christians. There's nobody who gets this sort of like, I get to do whatever I want, but I still get to go to heaven. That doesn't exist. But the Christian life is one that you struggle all the time, either through temptation, actual sins. Uh, it is not something that you're going to wake up and just stretch your arms out and say, everything is blissful. So I want to dispel that myth and encourage you. We're going to look at... What does it mean to be a spiritual person? And, and, and hopefully what you'll find as we go along is, are you dependent? Are you living as one dependent? I was thinking about what it means to be spirit-filled spirit uh, and the idea of the movie Iron Man. I may have used this before. Iron Man. Anyone like Iron Man? That's like the best superhero movie for me because it's really good. Somebody's going to argue that later. Iron Man, or Tony Stark does these two things. right? He makes a really great suit, right? He makes a crappy one. Excuse my language. He makes a bad one first. Sorry. And then when he gets back to his like studio, he makes like amazing suits of armor or whatever, you know, Iron Men suits. But they're useless without that thing, that power source. 
I don't even know what it's made of. What is it made of? Plutonium or some made-up thing that Marvel made up years ago. Now remember, he has that put into his heart to keep him alive, right? It pulls the shrapnel from going in deeper into his heart and killing him. But what he finds out is not only does this keep me alive, it powers the suit. That suit is useless without the power source. Okay. You are useless without the Holy Spirit. You can try you can try to maneuver your body and go through this world, and you can try to use laws and rules and discipline, but if the Spirit is not driving you, it's useless. It's lifeless. So, are you a spiritual person? That's the question we're looking to answer this morning. And the first thing we're going to look at, these are, I'm going to give four requirements, four important, necessary, critical things to live by the Spirit. Okay? These are the four qualifications. The first one is that a spiritual person has a singular motive to glorify God. Okay? If you look at the end of our passage, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Is that your motive for everything? A spiritual person has that motive. Two people can be doing the very same thing, one for themselves and one for God. And that's the question Paul's putting out there. What motivates you to do what you do? Here's another question. Do you feel love, delight toward God? Like, is that a natural feeling? The other morning I was reading Psalm 18 on the 18th. It's a good thing to do. Read the Psalm of the day. You won't get through all of them in a month unless you have 150 days in a month. But it's a start. And in Psalm 18, just the very first words just hit me upside the head. David, you see it all the time, but David says, I love you, O God. I love you. And I just thought, I don't say that to God. I say it to my wife. We're a family that says, I love you all the time. Bonnie has learned it. She's like, love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. And we mean it. And I think all of you love somebody a lot in this world, and you really feel affection toward them. A grandparent, a roommate, a, a spouse, a child, a parent, a friend. But do you feel that way toward God? Religious people don't. Spiritual people do. Let me be clear. You can be religious and spiritual, but natural people who are living out of, the, out of their flesh don't feel that love toward God. Spiritual people do. Do you feel that love? I want to read a quote from Walter Marshall. He says, Real love for God means that he, the person, the spiritual person, must be the only thing that matters. No, sorry. That God must be the only thing that matters to you. God must be your greatest happiness. You are to love him as your absolute Lord and Master. You love everything about him, and you have no desire for him to be any better than he is. You want his will to be done in you so much that you will do it no matter what it costs you. You want his will to be done, whether it's prosperity or suffering, whether life or death. You rejoice in him in all things, and you love to obey him. That is what the spiritual life looks like. That's one of the beginning things. It's a love toward God, it's radical. Let me give a, a practical example. Have you ever said to someone, I'll pray about that? Hey, will you help out on this committee? I'll pray. Let me just pray and see what God... What are you saying? Right? What are you, you going to pray? Are you waiting for... I prayed about it, and I never got an envelope. I never got like an, the email. I never got the audible voice. So, no. Is that what we do? What do we mean? And by the way, I'm not going to just... If you want to hear the audible voice, great. I think most of it honestly mean, let me think about it, but I'll say it religiously. Um, 
But here's a good thought. If I'm trying to do all things for the glory of God, what I'm going to pray about is, Lord, am I thinking, will this bring you glory? Will this new activity, can I do it for your glory? Or am I simply people-pleasing? Am I simply adding on more that's going to take away from somewhere else? So just thinking about what it would look like to do all things for the glory of God. Of course, that's radical, right? Every one of you already feels this like, I don't do that with anything. It's hard. But it is what the Spirit looks like. Everything I say has the, the converse. The converse is the flesh. The reverse is the flesh. The flesh does everything for ourselves. right? We, we, we try to live and, and measure everything we do for us. So as we begin this discussion, understand I know that most of us aren't connecting every point and dot in our lives to the glory of God. But it is the ideal. It is the goal. And I think you'll see as we move ahead, it may actually be possible. But we have this flesh that's trying to take over and capture us, it leads us into temptation. So let me just, as we transition to the next point, I want to just throw this picture out of what it would look like to actually give the control up to God in certain areas of our lives and just say, I want to do this for your glory. It's like training a child to drive a car. I mean, the very first time your 15-year-old gets behind the wheel, have you ever had to do, we did driver's ed ourselves. Don't do that. But we did that. Because when I went through driver's ed, that guy had a steering wheel. I had a steering wheel. That guy had pedals. I had pedals. I messed up. He could just take it and say, sorry, you messed up. Break. Let's talk about what you just did. I remember the first time Grayson got behind the wheel, and I'm just sitting there like, I hope you don't wreck. <laughs> and they never have the brakes down. It's like, whoa, gee. We don't, we don't like to give control over. Now, God doesn't drive as bad as a new driver, but we feel like he does. Our unbelief is afraid of letting him have control. So just wetting our appetite, the spiritual life longs to do things for God's glory. I think I want to make sure I point that out because it's actually a beautiful way to live. But what, what makes it hard for us? Why do we struggle? And the answer is that we struggle because of our desire for dependency or for independency, excuse me. So the second point we're going to look at, a spiritual person knows they are dependent. How many of you know you are dependent? How many of you think of the Christian life as I am utterly dependent on God? Or do you have this false illusion that one day when you get it together, you will wake up and long for that quiet time? And then you'll leave that quiet time and you'll speak friendly to everybody in the household or your and you're at school, and, and all day long, nothing will tempt you. It's like your Teflon, boom, boom, and you just got it down, and you lay your head on the pillow at the end of the day, and you think, a day without sin. That was amazing. The reason we struggle with this whole first point I mentioned is that we really don't think God loves us. And so the second point is we, we can't move as a spiritual person into this reality without knowing that God loves us. Now, at this point, those of you that love expository preaching are going, where is that in the text? Right? Where? Thank you. I see a couple of head shakes. Well, let me show you where that is in the text. Where is God's love in the text? Chapter 10, what does Paul do? He points us to Israel. He gives the history of Israel. He says, for I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. What is that about? Well, there was a whole bunch of people in slavery. 
most of them, some of them knew of the promises that were made to, their, to the patriarchs, but they, that seemed so old. And one day, God shows up and says, I'm rescuing you. And without them having to do anything, the waters are separated. They walk right through them. Who wouldn't? Israel's, Egypt's coming behind them. And then next, the pillar of cloud goes from in front to behind. The point is, God says to them, I am your God. You are my people, and I love you. And I wanted to know, what's amazing for Paul is these people who had all this love showered on them, the moment they complained, ah, I'm a little thirsty. There's all the most beautiful water you could ever want coming right out of a rock. I'm a little hungry. There's like this stuff called manna everywhere, you know? And quail. Just this constant orphan-like living that the people of Israel were constantly complaining, and yet God was constantly saying, I love you, I've provided for you. And yet they didn't accept it. Do you see your story in this at all? Do you see your resistance to God's love? Do you feel a little bit of that like, I'm not sure that he really loves me? Now some of you feel he loves you sometimes. But when you sin, and in that moment of sin, you're living out of your flesh, and by default at that moment, you're not believing that God loves you and delights in you and looks on you with singing, right? At that moment, you're living out of your flesh. And what we do in light of that reality is we try to live independent of God. We want to be independent people. And yet this scripture calls us to be dependent. And I hope you'll hear this. To be a spiritual person, you have to be dependent. Look at verse 12. Therefore, and he's just referenced all of these things that have happened to the life of Israel. In 11, he says, now these things happened to them as an example. And then in verse 12, therefore, let anyone who thinks they can stand, or that he stands, take heed lest he fall. And and what the original language is saying, anyone that thinks that they're independent, that they're standing on their own with no help. And the actual Greek is, look, like watch out, observe. Observe that mentality. Because when you live like that, I got this. Look out, you're already in the, you're falling. You're free falling. You've taken the Spirit out, right? And I think most of us think that's the ideal Christian life. We think the ideal Christian life is to get beyond our need of a Savior. Now let's go back in the passage. Remember, the, the original audience heard this letter read in one unit, right? He didn't stop. Okay, that's verse 8. We'll pick up tomorrow morning at verse 9 after breakfast. He, they read the whole letter, right? Well, in chapter 2, chapter 1, excuse me, I've already mentioned this. Paul, in a shocking way, after saying, y'all have divisions, in verse 17 says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquence, wisdom. See, I love to, I love to mumble there, because you can't get on to me. Sorry, this is a preacher joke. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul is letting the Corinthians understand if you are not enamored by the reality of the cross, that a Savior came, rescued you, brought you into His kingdom, put His Holy Spirit into you, all because of his mercy, if that doesn't enamor you, beware. Beware. 
You're standing on your own. Oh, that's the doctrine of the cross. Be careful, right? I think that the cross is shocking to most of us because we, we think of it as a weak place. We, we want to get to that place where certainly we, we need it. We wear the cross on our neck. I have a ring or I have that thing. But are we living out of in light of that cross? A spiritual person does. A, super, a person living by the Spirit lives out of the cross. Thirdly, these are all the preconditions that are the conditions of living as a spiritual person. The spiritual person longs for heaven. Um, I think when you look at older Christian writing, people from throughout history, there was this longing for heaven. I remember hearing a story of some missionaries that like packed their things to go overseas in a coffin. I'm all worried about like 401 or whatever. What are they called? <laughs> Not 501c3s. That's important. 401. You know, missionaries now are like, do I have my retirement? And, and that's fine. But this idea that could I have ever had that mentality to say, honey, I feel like we're called to missions, and I bought our caskets. But for them, it was sort of like, I'm probably never coming back. Now, this is before airlines and all that, so maybe it just took a long time. And, um, but the point isn't, I'm not trying to be negative, but do we even have the idea of heaven in our midst? Where is that in the passage? Come on. Israel is the people that aren't falling, the people who aren't worshiping the golden calf. The people who are actually Christians in the midst of Israel are thinking, when are we arriving in Canaan? When are we going to get there? I long for that reality. And now they struggle. And we all have this struggle with, well, how does that play out in my daily life? Like, if I say I want heaven, I think one of the mistakes we make, and you see this in Christianity in the 21st and the 20th centuries, it's sort of like, well, I know I'm going there, and that's my backup plan. That's my plan. And then we just kind of do what we want, right? That's one problem. That's a, mis- that's a disconnect. But another disconnect is to like get so rigid that, oh, I'm waiting for heaven, so I'm going to sit in a tree and I'm not going to eat until it shows up. You know? And then three days later, you have to climb out and humiliate yourself and eat food again. Those are some extremes. The question I want to ask you is, how do we live out the reality of heaven now? Do you, does, does your view of the future play into your present at all? Um, I want to read a quote from C.S. Lewis. I've read this before. The Weight of Glory. Lewis is describing this inner pain that we all have where we long for the far-off country. And he says, In speaking of this desire for our own far-off country, which we find in ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. I'm almost committing an indecency. I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you. The secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia or romanticism or adolescence. The secret also which pierces with such sweetness that when in very intimate conversations about it, the mention of it becomes imminent. We grow awkward and affect to laugh at ourselves. The secret we cannot hide and cannot tell, though we desire to do both. We cannot tell it because it is a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience. We cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it. And we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of a name. 
listen, listen when he says, our commonest expedient is to call it beauty. He says Wordsworth's expedient was to identify with certain moments in his own past. But it's a cheat. If Wordsworth had gone back to those moments in the past, he would not have found the thing itself, but only the reminder of it. For me, that's like looking at old photographs. You get emotional. But I'm like, but when I was there, I could care less. I was ready to get that time over with. I wanted to move on to the next thing. But now I'm like, oh, it was, it was an amazing moment. It's like your heart's remembering something that sort of wasn't actually present, right? Nostalgia. The books or the music which we thought the beauty was located in will betray us if we trust only them. It was not in them, it only came through them. And what came through them was longing. Do you hear what he's saying? It's good to love the things of this earth, but love them, love Christ through them, love heaven through them, love the way they point to where we're longing to go. Don't separate them out. There's a risk of doing that. He says these things the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. And that's what Israel faced. Israel was struggling with idolatry. And, and Corinth was struggling with idolatry. Not just food sacrificed to idols, but anything that's an end in and of itself. Even great things. Most of the things that we make idols out of are beautiful and great, but only because they are channeling heaven through them. Is that your longing? Do you have heaven as your longing? Is that what you're living for? Or are you simply looking at these things as, as an end in and of themselves? See, a spiritual person is someone who actually is longing for heaven, but it, it plays out in their, in their midst, right? In, in their life, okay? It's, um, it's sort of like, on one hand, I'm bringing heaven to bear now. But on the other hand, I want to get out of here and go to heaven. Think of Paul. To live as Christ. Right now, in this place, I want you to know Jesus. Paul would say, I want you to experience that freedom. But also, man, there's a part of me that just wants to die. It is gain. And that tension actually leads to a fruitful life, doesn't it? Jesus came. And you know Jesus wanted to return, but he had work to do. But what did he do? He healed people. A lot of people say he healed people because like a magic trick. It kind of got people's attention. Do a great magic trick and then tell them about the gospel. Hey, you got an audience. No. It was the first fruits of what we're longing for. The repealing of the fall. The taking away of the problems. The removal, the removal of all the things that just cause life to just crumble before you. Jesus came and said, I'm removing this finally. One day, someday. Imagine what Lazarus must have felt. He had that. He was raised from the dead, but yet he kind of knew this isn't the final thing. How He had to tell people, like, it's awesome. I mean, I, was, I, was, I don't even know where I was, and I was awake again. But oh, I still don't know what that's going to be like there. Like, that tension. We're all with Lazarus. If you are in Christ, your eternity is now. Well, verse 11, these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. A spiritual person sees that. And they make all of their life oriented toward glory in God, resting in their adoption that they have been rescued, that they've been loved, and longing for heaven and the final thought I want to share with you is the spiritual person realizes he or she is in a battle. 
I think if you are interested in Eastern meditation, one of the promises is that if you calm your mind enough, everything can be relaxed and serene. Even now, you hear the effects of the fall. You cannot get away from the fall. And so Paul tells us in verse 16, or 14, excuse me, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. You are in a battle. You have to run. You have to fight. We don't want to fight. There's something in us that feels like fighting is losing, right? If I have to fight, I have to lose. In fact, you'll see dysfunctional relationships are built on people who just simply say, I I can't handle any kind of issue. (laughs) Shut down, I'm out. And then the marriage falls apart. What happened? I don't know. It's functional to battle in Christ, right? It's functional to deal with issues and say, how can Christ heal this situation? In verse, and this is what we named the whole sermon, in verse, you've been waiting for this maybe, in verse 13, he talks about temptation. I wanted to picture temptation like this bubble, okay? I, I want us to realize that you have a stimulus and a response. The stimulus is sort of like, I could sin. The response is, I'm sinning. A lot of Christians, they have a very tiny gap between the two. I think Paul wants us to expand that bubble into this, what I'd call a temptation bubble. That's another bumper sticker. That's two in one sermon. The, the temptation bubble. What do I mean? Temptation means to test. It means you haven't yet sinned. But here's the problem with temptation. When it comes, you feel as if you've sinned. Right? If you've actually been drawn to a sinful thought, that's temptation. But don't you feel like, oh, I've already gone. I've already failed. I've already fallen. So, you have a couple of options. One is redefine the rules and say, you know what? I don't think that's a sin. We got two laughs. Thank you. But the other side, and I think a lot of the rest of us will do this. We do the cross your fingers methodology. Oh, I sinned, but Jesus died for me, and he loves me, and everything's fine, and you move on. In fact, I feel closer to him when I sin. We're like people who cut themselves with razor blades, but spiritually. It's like, I just need to feel Jesus, so I'll, I'll sin. And I feel his forgiveness. No, that's not, Paul's warning us, that's not how it works. That's not how growth happens. In fact, growth happens, according to Paul, when you fight, when you battle. So when you feel temptation, are you battling? How do you fight it? How do you battle it? Are you both, both the crossing of the finger methodology, which I think a lot of us know what I'm talking about, or the redefining methodology, are avoiding the cross. They're avoiding having to go to Jesus and saying, I've done it again. I've sinned. I've turned my back on you. I need your blood freshly applied to me. Look at verse 16. This cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? What is Paul reminding them? You need, if you're a spiritual person, every day a fresh application of the blood of Christ. It's once and for all. You're saved. Justification is done. But we take communion and we remember it because we, we sin, we struggle. And so I'm trying to get us to understand this idea of temptation. And, and we don't have a lot of time, but it, there are three realms where this temptation comes from. One is the world. 
Corinth is a really, really cruddy place. Like, you get invited to dinner, and you're like, yeah, the Jones invited us to dinner. You get there, and they start sacrificing a lamb and start speaking some foreign pagan language. You're like, what do I do? They're sacrificing to an idol. You know, it's like, that's not good. That's a hard environment. When there's prostitutes on the street, and it's a difficult environment. The world is tough, and it will tempt you. But what's even more crazy is your flesh. I think this is the part that most Christians don't grasp. The enemy now resides inside of you. In this side of heaven, you will never not have your flesh. Do not believe anything that says your flesh diminishes. You know, I've been a Christian for 30 years, and so now my flesh doesn't really do much. Every now and then I get jealous. No. Your flesh is coming at you. Even if it hides for a while. Let you think you're doing pretty well, and then it comes out with two fists, right? It gets you. Part of the way it gets you is it makes you think you're a good person. And then the devil. And that's where we look at verse 20. 19 and 20. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Of course not. It's just an idol. It doesn't exist. There's no God. But Paul's like, yeah, it's true. But there are these things called demons, right? We sang uh, Mighty Fortress and Luther says, the world with demons filled. At one point, he throws an ink thing at the wall because he thought he saw Satan. He may have been a little wacky, but maybe we could use a little bit more of that reality. Are you in living in the temptation bubble? And I don't mean that in a weird... I want to know. I want you to. I want you to fight. I want you to be a mature, spirit-filled Christian. I used to think, and I've often thought, it's immature. I, I, would, have, I would have told you the mature Christian isn't tempted by anything. But then the mature people I meet that walk with Jesus are constantly not doing things that I think should be fine. And as I've grown in my faith, I'm realizing maybe that activity or that thing, though legally my right, isn't healthy. Right? A mature person in Christ flees not only to sin, but the, even the temptation of sin. And the Lord's Prayer, Lord, lead us not into temptation. The Lord does not tempt you in the way that Satan tempts you, but he will test you. And the Scripture says he provides a way out. And the way you grow in Christ is by finding that way out prior to sinning. I need to hear that message, and I think you need to hear that message. Don't think you're growing just because every time you sin, you repent. That's great. It's good. But how about every now and then resisting the sin? And still repenting. I mean, we all need repentance. Repentance is coming back to the Lord and saying, I'm trying to live apart from you. Are you spiritually mature? Are you a spirit-filled person? So, to summarize what we've said. Number one, do you love God? If you're filled with the Spirit, you will actually have a delight in the Lord. You will love Him. Guess what? If you don't feel that way, I've got great news for you. Fresh opportunity to repent. You're a Christian if you don't feel that way. If you're a Christian, you may not feel that way. What do you do? You say, Lord, forgive me for not loving you. My reason for not loving you is because I don't think you love me. I secretly, I'm sort of not buying into it. Point number two. I'm not resting in my justification. I'm not resting in my adoption. I'm not realizing you brought me out of Egypt. You've given me all the spiritual blessings of Christ. And I'm sitting here worried about this one thing and I'm forgetting you. Justification will drive you to love God. You long for heaven. Are you, or this, uh, we've been talking about when you're filled with the Spirit, you'll, you'll love this earth, but you'll love it in light of heaven. 
longing for the future? And then do you fight the good fight? Do you go into battle? And all of these things point you to the cross. Is the cross big for you? I am going to still end with an illustration. I'm at 35 minutes. I'm going to give you an illustration that's also application. So for those of you who are like, what do I practically do? Um, here's the answer. Several of you have gone through sonship. Some of you are going through it. Some of you are wondering what that means. You can email me. Uh, but Lesson 10, we, I went through with a couple this week, and we looked at Lesson 10, and I was reminded of, of the cross chart. I won't go into all the details, but I just want to remind us that the cross is only large when we actually can repent and admit our frailty and run to it, and that is discipleship. That's the message of the morning. And, and there's an assignment at the end of this lesson. I, this is your application. You go up to people. You go up to one person. You choose a person in your life who knows you really, really well, but who also has your best interest in mind. And you ask that person, tell me what you think my number one sin is. Maybe a blind spot, something I don't see. So Josiah Bancroft, who was giving the lecture, said, well, he took it. I'll ask three people. Starts with his wife. Honey, what's my biggest sin? And she gets real quiet, and he says he thought about, oh, no. Like, you know, I was thinking, you know, sometimes you're a little late. I don't know. And uh, she said, you're an angry man. And he just was blindsided. Never thought it. Because, he says, his anger that he now sees is not lose your temper, yell, have to apologize. It's sort of this sort of quiet, fuming anger. And he never thought of himself as an angry man. He was shocked, but he thought, I want to keep asking people. So he asked his kids, and he caught to his daughter, who he says is probably one of the more spiritually perceptive of his children. And he said, honey, what, what is daddy's greatest sin? She was two. So, no, I'm kidding. Um, she's 13, and she said, or 14, I don't know her age, but she was knowledge enough to say, daddy, you know when you get real quiet, and you just, you just know you're angry? Like that's, she didn't know how else to describe it. And he just says tears are coming to his eyes. And so later he talked to his secretary. And I don't remember her name, maybe Ruth Ann or something. That may be his wife, I don't know. They said, I've got a question for you. Something weird is happening. I've been asking people like, what my greatest sin is, and I'm going to ask you, am I angry? Do you, do you think of me as an angry person? And he said she blushed. And she said, I almost quit the first week. And he was just like... What's going on? And what is the point? He says, look, if I tried to live my discipleship life by following rules, by Bible studies and all these things, as, as my only means for growth, I would have never known what three, four, or five people all saw, that I was angry. But the Spirit revealed to me this sin, and the only hope I had in that moment was not a set of rules, was not a new discipline plan. Check back in in three months. Have I done better? All of which are fine. Please, don't hear what I'm not saying. But my primary need at that moment was to fall on my knees at the cross and say, Dear Lord, I am more sinful than I ever knew and more in need of you than I've ever understood. Will you save me? I didn't even know it existed. And my assignment to you is to pick the scab of your sin so hard this week that the cross will grow from that measly little size we've all turned it into as a necklace into the real thing it is where you have grace and mercy and acceptance and love and union in Jesus. And then next week, tell me how it went.
I say that because I love you, and I love Jesus, and I know he wants to change you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're afraid of our lives being disrupted, so we avoid any kind of relationship where that conflict might be exposed. And yet in your gospel, you call us to go seek it, to open our lives to those closest to us and say, show me, help me. Lord, ultimately we're crying out to you. Lord, heal the bones that you have broken. But first we have to see that they're broken, that we would come back to you freshly, understanding your cross better than we've ever understood it, that the gospel message is not that years ago we needed you and now you're a great example but the gospel message is we are in complete and utter dependence on you. You are the vine. We are the branches. Please stop Satan and our flesh from convincing us that that is not true. Please stop our flesh and Satan from telling us we've got this. Or, you know what, we can just coast along. Lord, teach us to walk not as idolaters, but as those who see how lovely you are and rest in the love you have for us. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.